0: doing, Hume Lake? Right on. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We'll be in Daniel chapter 2 tonight. Daniel chapter 2. as we continue through the story of Daniel. We continue through the story of Daniel, a man who is living in exile, a man who is living in a place that is different from his own. Exile, you'll remember from yesterday, is a place that is uncomfortable. It is unfriendly. It is uncompromising, and we're going to see that tonight as you turn to Daniel 2. As you turn Daniel two, um, one of the things I'll share with you that I used to do a lot more than I do now uh, is I used to journal. And one of the cool things about journaling, and some of you journal from time to time and you write down notes and sermons or you just write down what God's doing in your life. One of the coolest things about journaling is that you can actually start to read your journals later on in life. And so uh, what I have in my hands right now is my journal from my final months of college. So I graduated college in 2010, in May of 2010, and what I have in my hands is my journal from that time in that season. Now here's what I need you to know. Um, there is something a little bit scary about senior year of high school because you're not sure where you're going to go to school or what's going to come next. But actually, for me, I found senior year of high school was not as scary as senior year of college because senior year of high school it was so clear, so obvious that I was just going to go to college. But then after college, it was sort of like, well, I'm done with college and so I have to like go be an adult and get a job and like feed myself. And if that doesn't happen, I'm just going to be like a hungry guy living on the street. Like, what's going to happen next? And so there's all this anxiety, all this fear. And I love from time to time opening up this journal and reading some of the sections and trying to remember what it was like 13 years ago as I was about to graduate college. And so tonight, I I have this in my hands, and I flip through it even as I was preparing for camp. And as I was preparing for camp this week and preparing for tonight's message, there were two things that ran through my head as I read my thoughts from 13 years ago right as I was about to graduate college. Here was the first thought I had as I was reading through my journal. I was so dramatic, (laughs) Oh my goodness. Anyone else here willing to admit you're dramatic sometimes? Just raise it high, okay. It's just good to admit. Yeah, let let me read you a passage that I'm just like, you ever read old writing of yourself and be like, ooh, here's me, here is me. So this was, this was written on April the 3rd of 2010. I had applied to be at a church, uh, actually the very church that I now still serve at, uh, and yet I was kind of stuck in the application process. I was a month away from graduation, hadn't heard anything from them, and here's what I write. I must confess that I'm so dramatic. <laughs> here's what I write. I must confess I have not been comfortable with how long it has taken for this application process to happen. I am one month away from graduation, and frankly, I am scared. <laughs> So dramatic. And I read through this. And and here's what I notice: the first thing, like I'm dramatic. But then, but then here's the second thing I notice. And and it's actually the key point to everything we're gonna talk about tonight. I, I write this about the application process, and I feel like I'm waiting, and I feel like I'm getting close, and I don't know what's gonna happen. But here's the very next words I wrote 13 years ago, a few months back. I'm one month away from graduation, and frankly, I'm scared. I shouldn't be, though. God always always, always comes through for me. And if I could have gone back, if I could have gone back 13 years in time, if I could have gotten in a time machine and looked Brian in the face 13 years ago, I would have told him, you have no idea how true those words were gonna be. I had no idea that less than a month after writing these words, I would walk into an office for an interview and meet the woman who would one day become my wife. I had no idea that I would get hired by a church that I thought I'd just be at for a few months for an internship and that would become my ministry, my pastoral career, my entire life would be there. I had no idea I would meet some of the best friends I've ever met, have one of the most incredible experiences with God I've ever had. I had no idea that I would buy a house in that area, bring three babies into the world in that church. I had no idea how good God would be to me but here's what I did know. I knew that God always, 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 always comes through for me. And here's what I want to convince you with, with every ounce of my being tonight, like with everything I have tonight, I have one agenda for this evening, and it is to let you know that whatever happens to you in this world, good, bad, or ugly, that God will always, 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 always come through for you. That's what our God does That's what he's in the business of doing, and I want you to see that clearly tonight. There is a God in the midst of a world that is uncomfortable and unfriendly and uncompromising. In the midst of all the chaos and the strife and the angst and the anxiety and the depression of your life, there is a God who wants to come through for you. And I want you to see that here in these stories tonight. So again, Daniel chapter 2, here's how it begins. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. So you remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He is the pagan, wicked king of this massive empire that has taken over the people of God. It says he had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Now, this is one of these moments that'd be very easy to read this story and be like, all right, whatever. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. I have dreams sometimes. They're weird. I don't really care. You move on from that. But here's what you need to know in the story. Nebuchadnezzar's dream and what happens as a result of this dream he has is going to change the situation for Daniel and his friends. It's actually going to change their life. And what you need to be crystal clear on when we talk about this dream is this is not just a random dream the king had in the middle of the night because he had some bad pizza the night before. This dream was put into his brain specifically by the God of the universe, the Lord our God, Yahweh, the one who is who he is. He put this dream into Nebuchadnezzar's mind. Now, here's why some of you just kind of bristle at that. Because some of you don't actually believe in a God who has anything to do with the world and what goes on in it. In fact, I think a lot of you believe in a God who basically does nothing in the world. Like the way I would describe and the way theologians would describe the God many of you believe in is as a deist God. Deist with a D. And deism is this. It's the idea that God created the world, but now he's kind of standing back watching it happen and he's not interfering. We're not quite sure what he's doing. Maybe he's watching TV. Maybe he's eating. Maybe he's taking a nap. But he's just kind of like standing back watching the world with his arms crossed and he's not going to interfere with anything. And the tragedy is that far too many people, even those who call themselves Christians, believe in a God who created the world, but then steps back and never interferes. But that's not the God the Bible teaches us about. The God called Yahweh is not a deist God who stands back and lets it all unfold. Our God is what we would call a theist with a T. Theism, the idea of theism, is the idea of a God who is actively involved in the world who's actually moving and shaping and changing things and molding the world and actually determining how the universe goes. That God is actively engaged in the life of every single person in the world and every single atom in all of the universe. So my concern for some of you is that you want to trust God. But the problem is you can't trust God if you don't think God actually does anything. And some of you believe in a God that does nothing. He just kind of stands there, looks at the universe, goes, that's a shame. But how could you trust a God like that? The only kind of God you could actually trust is a God who interferes with the affairs of humankind, steps in, changes history, and accomplishes everything he wants to accomplish. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, an old preacher, said it this way. He said, every one of those dust motes is keeping its position and moving through the air by God's appointment. Well, like you ever seen dust get kicked up and a light shoots through it? And you can almost see it. It's almost like haze in a concert and you see the light going through it, those dust motes are in the air. And here's what Charles Spurgeon is saying. God is actually paying attention to where every dust mote is. God didn't step back and say, the world will take care of itself. He is intimately involved with every detail, every sunset, every rain, every moment, everything. There is nothing random in this world. God is sovereign. God is involved. And you cannot trust God until you get to that point. Because if you think God doesn't do anything, you can't actually trust him. And God is sovereign over your life. He is moving in your life. He is determining things in your life. You know how much I believe in God's sovereignty? This is crazy. So on my way up the mountain um, on Sunday, I was listening to a worship playlist. And I got to the mountain, and I was listening to some other stuff, some podcasts, and then I decided, you know, on the way up the mountain, I'm gonna listen to this worship jam playlist I have on Spotify. And so I hit shuffle on it. And here's how much I believe in God's sovereignty. As I was driving up the hill, I let whatever the shuffle was go to the song and believed that whatever God needed me to worship to, whatever words needed to be in my brain, God was gonna make sure it showed up next on the shuffle list. And if you think that's crazy, you don't know how powerful our God is. He can do whatever he wants. Our God's so powerful, he could slide a song in there. I didn't even put it, right? That's what God's sovereignty means. Again, the story we're about to read tonight. It's not the story of this hands-off God who stands back and goes, you guys figure it out. It is the story of a God who is involved, even in the dreams of a pagan king. Then here's what happens next. Verses 4 through 30, I'm going to summarize for you. We just read the first three. I'm going to summarize these next 25, 26 verses. Here's what happens. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he's terrified. Like, he's freaking out about this dream. So he calls together all the smart people, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. And he says to them, hey, I need you to interpret the dream. And they all go, okay, that sounds good. Tell me what the dream is. And he goes, "Ah, not so fast. If you really had any contact with the supernatural world, you would be able to not only tell me what the dream means, but you need to tell me what the dream is. And here's the requirement, he says. I need you guys to tell me what the dream is that I dreamed and what it means. And if you don't tell me what the dream is and what the dream means, I will kill all of you. The stakes couldn't be higher. You will die unless someone tells me what I, in the privacy of my own bedroom, in my own mind, dreamed last night and what it means. And sure enough, no one can do it. Everyone goes, that's an impossible task. No one can do that. How could you even ask us to do this? And so Nebuchadnezzar goes, fine, fair enough. You're all going to die. And he sentences them all to death. And they go to hunt down Daniel, the main character of our week. And they go to find Daniel and they tell Daniel what's about to happen. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know the God who tells me everything. I know everything because I know the one who knows everything and shapes everything and molds everything and advances everything forward. He is who he is, and I can interpret this dream. So he goes to the king, and he says, King, I know what dream you dreamed last night, and I'm going to give you the interpretation. And if you have your Bible, I want you to look at verse 31. That's where we're going to pick up. Daniel is now speaking to the most powerful man in the world, King Nebuchadnezzar, and here are the words he says. He says, Your majesty, King Nebuchadnezzar, Looked, and before you, in your dream, stood a large statue. Now, he's about to describe the statue in intimate detail. And if you've never heard this story before, or if you haven't actually taken time to read this and think deeply, you'll get a little lost in the weeds. And so uh, we don't know what the statue actually looked like, but a bazillion people over the years have tried to sketch it. And I'm gonna show you a little picture right here of the statue. So we're gonna talk about this. Sorry, a little blurry, that's my fault. Uh, but that's the best picture I could find without a lot of other stuff. So, here's the statue. And here's how Daniel describes it. We'll leave this up here. An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. So not a little bitty statue, massive statue. And then here's what he says in verse 32. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. You can see that. The head is made of gold, pure gold. And then it says the chest and arms of silver. You'll see that there. And then its belly and thigh is made of bronze. And then its legs are made of iron. And its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. So in other words, he describes this statue made of materials. It starts with gold, then silver, then bronze, then iron, and then the feet are kind of like iron and baked clay together. And this is important, all these different materials here. And then here's what he says. He says, verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. So like a rock not caught by human hands, you kind of imagine like an asteroid, right? Like st- coming in from out of fa- uh, outer space, like steaming in and destroys the statue. And that says, the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it for you, the king. So in other words, Daniel correctly identifies the king's dream. It's of this statue right here. The statue gets blown up by this rock, this asteroid, this mountain that comes and grows and envelops the whole earth. Verse 37, Daniel says, Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. And in your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over all of them. You are that head of gold. So he goes, Hey, you had this dream where there was a statue with a head of gold? You are the head of gold. But notice what Daniel says again when we talk about God and how he moves in this world. Notice it didn't say you're just powerful because you did it on your own. Notice what it says over and over again. God has given you dominion and power. In your hands, he has placed them. Like in other words, Nebuchadnezzar is only in charge because God decided he was gonna be in charge. We don't serve a deist God who sits back and goes, well, we'll see what happens. We serve a God who's actually choosing who gets to be in charge of the most powerful nation in the world. Then it goes on this way. It says, you are the head of gold, and after that, another kingdom will arrive, inferior to yours. And then next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule after you on the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. And just as you saw the feet and toes of partially baked clay and partially iron, so there will be a divided kingdom. And yet there will be some strength of iron in it, even as you saw the iron mixed with clay. And the toes that were partially iron and partially clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong enough, but partly brittle. And then when you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. So here's the interpretation. Daniel goes, hey, listen, the head of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. But someday you'll be dead and your empire will pass and there's a new one made of silver. And then a little lesser one made of bronze, then a little lesser one made of iron. Then you get down to the feet and it starts to dissolve and these empires kind of go away. And here's what interpreters for thousands of years have looked at and identified this story to be saying. Remember, this happened 600 years before Jesus. At this time, the Babylonian Empire is running the show. They are the massive global empire that is running almost the entire known world at that time. That's the statue, the head of gold. The next one is of silver. Because what's gonna happen even in this week as we study the book of Daniel is the Babylonian Empire is gonna be toppled and another empire is gonna take them over. And that empire is the Persian Empire really the Meadow Persian Empire. It's the Medes and the Persians together. They form that chest of silver, that next great empire that takes over the world. you got the Babylonians, you got the Persians, and then what's the next big empire that takes over after the Persians? It's the Greeks. It's the Greeks, the Greek empire, that Alexander the Great goes and he conquers and he creates this massive empire. That's this kind of midsection of bronze. And then what comes immediately after the Greeks? you got the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, which stretches its military might throughout the world, and yet, as they stretch so far and try to do so much, you get down to the toes, and it's brittle, and it dissolves, and it falls apart. Isn't it fascinating to you that 600 years before Jesus even lived, what the book of Daniel is calling is uh, Babylon's gonna collapse, then uh, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire is gonna collapse, then Greece is gonna come, then Rome is gonna come, and then Rome is eventually gonna dissolve and go away. Isn't it remarkable to you that 600 years before Jesus before anyone had ever heard of the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire or what came after the Roman Empire, that God is saying this is exactly how world history is gonna go? Like, can I just remind you over and over and over again that God is not this deist who stands back and goes, well, see how it goes. He is this theist. He is this Yahweh who moves and does whatever he wants to do, and he shapes human history. There is nothing happening in all of human history. There is nothing going on in our world today or the ancient world of these empires that God is not completely in control of. So next time someone pops off and tells you that the world is spinning out of control, everything's going sideways, Christians should panic, the sky is falling, you tell them, no, thank you, you are wrong. My God is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He reigns in heaven. He is control of all things, and I don't have to be afraid of anything. That's the kind of posture we should have. God is calling his shot. He goes, that empire with the gold head, And the silver one and the bronze one and the iron one, I'm going to bring them all down. That's what our God is going to do. See, what our God knows he can do is God is going to bring down every enemy that stands against him. In the Bible, he brings down Egypt. He brings down Assyria. He brings down Babylon Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. He brings down all of those enemies. I want you to know God is going to bring down the philosophies and the false religions and the false prophets of our world today. They will not stand, they will ultimately fall. God will show himself to be victorious. And you know what's even better than that? God's gonna get rid of the greatest enemy, the last enemy. Do you know what the last enemy is according to the Bible? It's death. The last enemy to be defeated is death. And you know what Jesus says? There's going to come a day where he cracks the sky. He returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. He is going to put death to death. He is going to end the great enemy against God. He is going to end the enemy of God and Satan. He is going to end death and sin and pain and crying and mourning. Here's one of the last verses in the entire Bible. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In other words, the end of the world, the end of all times, is described as a wedding, where the bride and the groom finally come together, heaven and earth come together. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And listen to these words. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, For the old order of things has passed away. 600 years before Jesus, God gives a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, through the Spirit of God, interprets that dream, says Babylon's gonna fall, the Persian Empire's gonna fall, Greece is gonna fall, Rome's gonna fall, they're all gonna be crushed because that ultimate rock that comes out of the sky is a vision for God and who he is, and he's gonna crush every enemy, including death itself. Why do we have so much confidence in our God? It's because our God doesn't stand back and just kind of hope things work out. It's because our God is actually calling the shots in this world. Verse 44 goes on this way, he continues to interpret, he says, in the time of those kings, that being that divided kingdom of Rome, where things are starting to kind of crowd, Roman Empire is trying to hold everything together, but they're not actually doing it. Isn't this fascinating? In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. Now, isn't that fascinating? You got Babylon, you got Persia, you got Rome or Greece, and then you've got Rome. And he says, during that Roman Empire time, God's actually gonna do this new thing. He's gonna set up a brand new kingdom. And it's a kingdom that goes on forever and ever and ever, and it cannot be destroyed, and it will not be destroyed. And if you're not tracking with what that kingdom is, that is the kingdom of God that was inaugurated and brought into this world by the invasion of Jesus when he came as a baby. Jesus comes as a baby under what empire? The Roman Empire, this final empire being described here. So 600 years before Jesus, Daniel is prophesying that during that Roman Empire, Jesus is gonna come into this world and he's gonna set up a new kind of kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be removed, that cannot be destroyed and cannot be taken away. This is what our God is doing. And since that time of Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry, announcing, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God has been growing and expanding and reaching all throughout the world that people might know Yahweh and might know his salvation and might know that he is the true king over all of the earth. This is what Jesus came to do. And you'll notice what it says here. You'll notice in verse 44, look, it says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and it hasn't. You notice in 600 years they went from the Babylonian Empire to the Persian Empire to the Greek Empire to the Roman Empire. You notice that was 600 years, four different empires. You notice it's been 2,000 years, and the church of Christ and the kingdom of God are still expanding all over the world to every nation and tribe and tongue and language. Almost like Daniel speaking from God's spirit and God's knowledge and God's power knows exactly what he's talking about. Again, our God is not the deist God who sits back and just lets the world unfold. He is involved. He is doing things. But then here's what we need to wrestle with tonight. What we have to wrestle with tonight is this simple question. If it's true that there's this kingdom that Jesus inaugurated and God is in control and he's growing this kingdom and this kingdom is ultimately taking over the world like this mountain that is growing all over the world, here's the question I want to ask. Why do terrible things keep happening? Like a couple years ago, I got a chance to visit one of our ministry partners. His name is Farshid. Farshid was a man who was living in Iran, and through someone handing him a Farsi Bible, he actually came to know Jesus. And he became a pastor, and he started leading people to Jesus. And the biggest problem for Pastor Farshid was that so many people were coming to Jesus, and he had to baptize them. But he didn't know where to baptize them, because if you baptize someone in Iran, you get killed, because it's illegal. And so he started bringing people to his house and in his basement, he had a baptismal. They would close the blinds and make sure no one could come in and they would baptize people, baptize people. The gospel is exploding in countries like Iran right now. But then one day, one of those guys who snuck in wasn't a Christian, he was an informant. Pastor Farshid gets arrested and for five years, he gets put in solitary confinement. Since that day, five years before, so this was back in 2013, he hasn't seen his wife and children. He's been separated from them. And I want to sit here and go, okay, if God's sovereign, if his kingdom is truly taking over, if he truly controls everything, why does Farshid have to go to prison for five years? Like maybe I could tell you this just a couple months ago, right in our community, we had a tragedy. And those of you who are in our community, you know this. But like there was a madman who did a bunch of things in town and then took his car and drove it down one of the main streets in our town. And there was a bunch of high schoolers, hundreds of them getting out from school. And he decided in his insanity and wickedness to take his car and steer it right into a group of high school kids. Tons of kids injured. One kid, a freshman boy, dies that day. And if God is sovereign, why does senseless stuff like this get to happen? If God is sovereign, why didn't he stop that guy in his tracks? If God is sovereign, why did he let that happen? If God is sovereign, why did he let your parents divorce? If God is sovereign, why does your aunt have cancer? If God is sovereign, why did you have to go through the thing you went through as a kid? If God is sovereign and he's so good, why do bad things happen in this world? And that brings us back to the question we asked at the very beginning of the week. Why does God allow the things he allows? Why does God do the things that he does? If God is truly sovereign, why does he do this? And I wanna bring us back to the verse that I said answers that question for us every time. Psalm 115, three, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And I want you to hold on to that right now because tonight what I want you to know is there is a God in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. And what that means is there has never been a moment where God wanted to do something but couldn't. There has never been a moment where God wanted to accomplish something but didn't have the power to do so. And if you could do anything you want, whenever you wanted, in the way you wanted it, you would be happy and pleasure-filled forever because nothing would ever frustrate you. And that is who God is. God can do whatever he wants. And tonight, I want to wrestle with two facts One is that God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He is all powerful. He is sovereign. He is king. He controls all things. And yet there are wicked, horrible, awful, heartbreaking things that happen in this world and happen in your life. And rather than me just giving you a lecture on God's sovereignty, I want to tell you another story tonight. I want to tell you the story we're going to see in Daniel chapter 3. It's a story that even if you didn't grow up in church, maybe you've heard of. But I want you to see God's sovereignty and his power through this. Daniel chapter 3 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So remember he had a dream about a statue and it's almost like he went actually I know the rock destroys that statue and it's kind of a warning that God's going to take me down but I think I'm going to build me one of those. So he does and he builds a statue and you're like how high is 60 cubits? It's 90 feet tall. You know what that probably is? It's like one of these chapels stacked on top of another, like the tallest tree you can possibly see out there. That's how tall the statue was. He's like, why not? Let's just go for it. Let's go all out. So he builds this statue, and he sets it up, and he sets it up in such a way that he says that, that, that this statue is meant to represent who I am and the grandeur and the glory and the goodness of me. I want you to see what happens here in verse two. It says, then he summoned all the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, Judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. It's like a groundbreaking ceremony. He's like, look at this statue of me. I want you to come celebrate it. Verse 3, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. And the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. Remember what we said last night. Babylon has one interest. They want to shape you. They want to form you. They want to mold you. They want to disciple you into a certain kind of person. This is what they're going to say. This is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down in worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. And in this moment, you gotta go, come on, God. Like God, you are sovereign over all things. If God is truly even keeping the dust motes in the air, then surely during the construction of this 90 foot tall gold statue, surely he could have like sent a strong gust of wind and had it fall over and boom, it doesn't even exist anymore. Surely he could have sent an earthquake and made this thing not even happen anymore. So the question we have to keep wrestling with is this. If this God, Yahweh, the God who is who he is, is sovereign over all things, why do things like this get to happen? And that's the question we wrestle with. When it comes to this belief about God's sovereignty, we wrestle with why would God allow these bad things to happen even though he says he's good and he loves us and he's for us and he's with us. And we hold these two things together. God is good. God is faithful. God loves us. And yet he allows these horrible things to happen. How does this work? And I want you to know my answer to this and it's going to frustrate some of you. I have no idea. I have no idea. Actually, I think one of the most powerful things we can say about God in the Bible is that God is not something we can fully comprehend. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And if you ever get to a place where you're like, I fully understand God completely, I can promise you don't fully understand God completely. And yet one of the things I've learned throughout my life is I don't have to fully understand, I don't have to understand God completely in order to trust God fully. Can you write that down? You do not have to understand God fully in order to trust him completely. And as evidence of that, I want to talk about a thing that you don't understand at all, and yet you trust entirely and you devote endless hours of your life to it. I am going to stand here and make a contention that I don't think I've ever failed in making this properly. Um, I'm going to make the contention that nobody in this room actually knows how this thing works. This thing. Now, now you might be like, no, no, no I, I know how to do the th- I know, I, I know you know how to do the things, but how does it actually work? And if you say the word microchip to me, say like two more sentences, please because you don't know, and I don't know. We have these like really expensive devices, we spend all day on it, but no one in here could sit me down and explain to me the ins and the outs of how this little device can connect me to the internet and order me a pizza. Like you have no idea how this works. And yet there's not a single one of you in here, you're like, I don't know how it works, so I'm not gonna use it. You have no clue how that works and let you use it, why? Because you don't have to understand it fully in order to trust it completely. And the same thing goes for God's sovereignty. You do not have to understand God and his sovereignty and how it works and how he makes decisions and how that interacts with human will and our decisions. You don't have to understand it fully to trust it completely. Because here's what I like to say. If you understood God fully, it would mean your brain and God's brain are about on the same level. And is there anyone in this room who really wants to worship a God who has the brain power of a 16-year-old boy? I love you, boys. I love you. But that wouldn't be a God I'd want to worship. A God who's just about as smart as Brian Howard. Like, don't worship that God. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The way he operates, I'm very comfortable saying there's this mystery to God and his sovereignty and his control over all things. And I don't have to understand it fully in order to trust it completely. And here's what happens here. Massive statue, 90 feet tall, set up. And you know what? In God's sovereignty, you let it happen. God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He said, I'm actually good with that statue being up there, even though it's blasphemous, even though it's evil, even though it's wicked. Verse 7 goes on this way As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, and the lyre, and the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations, the people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of the gold that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At that same time, astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, there's f- are pretentious people, and that's what I'm going with here. The horn, the flute, the, lither, the, 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 the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship before the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down in the image and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews who, if you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Like, you see how, like, pretentious this is? They're like tattletales. They're like, hey, they're not bowing down. And they're telling on them. Why? Because when you are in exile, you are not in a place that is friendly to you. You are in a place filled with people who want to see you suffer, who want to see you lose, who want to see you compromise and bow down to the idols of the day. Do you know that the world right now wants you to be exactly like them? They don't really care if you follow Jesus, if you believe and act and talk and, and operate in the same way that they operate. They don't care what you believe in your heart. They want your life. They want to form you. They want to mold you. They don't want you to compromise. They don't want to come halfway. They don't want to pull you all the way in. And then it says this in verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods nor worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace. (laughs) Here's the deal. You guys get one more shot. Either bow down to my massive oversized statue that says something about my ego more than anything else, or I'll kill you. Those are the choices. And sometimes that's the choice in life. Either do the thing you know you shouldn't do or die. And that's what's put before them. And then he says these words. I think it's fascinating, actually. He says, then who will be able to rescue you from my hand? And I actually think that's a very good question. The king asked this question. Hey, listen, you bow down or you're gonna die. And listen, who's gonna be able to rescue you? And I think that's a profound question because here's what I know. I know that some of you are listening to me talk about the sovereignty of God and how you can trust him. And even in the evil and the wickedness and the horror of life, even in the worst things that have ever happened to you, you can trust God. And some of you are going, I don't want to trust a God like that. Some of you are going, if God allowed that to happen in my family or in my life or to my body or in that nation or in this world, if God allows things like this to happen, I don't want to trust him. Fine, here's my question for you. Who are you going to trust? What God will save you. Because if you're not going to trust Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, who are you going to go to? Some other God? You believe in some other God, some other being out there, some other deity? No? You're going to trust in money? Yeah, money seems to really work out for people. People who have a lot of money are always happy and everything always works out for them. Except for when it doesn't and it goes catastrophically wrong. What are you going to trust in power? Fame? Popularity? Sex? Even worse, are you going to trust in yourself? You let yourself down more than anyone lets yourself down. So if you're going to look at God and go, well, God, I can't trust in you, what, who else are you going to trust? See, the invitation tonight isn't to trust God because, oh, there's so many good options out there, but I'd like you to trust Yahweh. No, Yahweh is the only game in town. He's the only one worthy of your trust. He's the only one worthy of your confidence. And the king looks at them and goes, who are you going to trust? And that's the same question for you tonight. If it's not Yahweh, if it's not God, seriously, if you're in this room and you're saying, I don't want anything to do with your God, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a believer, I want nothing to do with this, awesome, who are you gonna trust with your life? Who are you actually gonna be confident in? Because if you think you are the answer to all of your problems, you are self-deceived and you are a fool once you realize that you are not the answer to all of your problems, that there is someone outside of you who can actually be worthy of your trust and of your confidence and of your future, that is the moment your life begins to change. It goes this way, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You know how you operate in a world where you live in exile as a follower of Jesus? In a world that is uncomfortable, a world that's unfriendly, a world that is uncompromising, you speak in this kind of way. I call this the anthem of the exile. Verse 16, we do not need to defend ourselves. Do you know that you don't actually have to defend everything about your life and following Jesus to the watching world? You don't have to prove that you're right or prove that you're actually making the best decision. You can just follow Jesus boldly without apologizing to anyone. You apologize to no one. You serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there will come a day that every mouth will confess him as Lord. Every knee will bow down. Apologize to no one. It says our God we serve is able. He's able to save us. If he wanted to put out this fire, he could. If he wanted to take us up to heaven, he could. If he wanted to put us back in Jerusalem, he could do so in an instant. He speaks and reality changes. We don't need to defend ourselves. The God we have is able. But then verse 18 is what really puts it over the top. But even if he does not, even if a few minutes from now we are burned up to death in that fire, we will not bow down. We will not bow down to your idols. We will not worship your false gods. We will not turn our back in the hope we have in heaven, the hope we have in Yahweh. That's the confidence you get to have. The confidence you get to have So whatever else happens in this world. You will not bow down. You will not be like the jellyfish who floats on the tide and just does what everyone else does. You're not gonna do it. And even if it means you get kicked out of your friend group, even if it means you don't make the team, even if it means you don't get a job someday, even if it means people mock you and belittle you and laugh at you, it doesn't matter because your hope isn't in the things of this world. Your hope is in heaven. And when I say your hope is in heaven, again, it doesn't mean your hope is in the little floaty place your soul goes up to when you die. Your hope is in heaven, which means three things. It means the return of the what? The king. The return of the king. Our hope is in the return and the second coming of Jesus where he cracks the sky and he judges the living and the dead. Our hope is in heaven. It is the return of the king. It is the resurrection of our bodies. It's the idea that you can kill me. You can slay me. You can throw me in prison. You can destroy me. You can blow me up. You can do whatever you want to do. But on the last day, my body's getting up out of the grave. Like, how do you threaten someone who knows that? How do you threaten someone who knows that whatever happens to me, I'm going to get back up anyway? You can't threaten someone like that. You can't scare them. When you fear God above all things, you're going, I don't, I'm just not afraid of you. I'm no longer afraid of your opinion. I'm no longer afraid of your comment on social media. I'm no longer afraid of you girls standing in that circle over there giggling at me. It just doesn't scare me anymore because I know whatever happens to me on the last day, Jesus is getting me up from the grave. It's the return of the king. It's the resurrection of our bodies and it's the restoration of all things, of all things. Like that's what's coming for us. Like There's going to come a day where all things are made new. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. No more cancer. No more heartache. No more people getting killed in senseless accidents. It's all going to be done. All the bad things are going to come untrue. God is going to redeem them and resurrect this entire world. That's what we look forward to. So how do we stand in the midst of a culture that hates us, that's hostile toward us, that wants us to bow down to these other things? We have our hope in heaven, the return of the king, the resurrection of the body, the restoration of all things. And now listen, when I say hope, it's important we get what I mean and don't mean by this. Sometimes when we say hope, what we really mean is our wish or desire. So I might say something like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or I hope my San Francisco 49ers can figure out their quarterback situation and get on track this year. I say I hope, but that's just like a wish. Thank you, brother. That is a desire. That is a desire. That's just like something I kind of want inside of me. And here's what I need you to know about biblical hope. Biblical hope is not a wish, it's not a desire. Biblical hope is not a question. Write this down. For biblical hope, the question is not, will this happen? The question is not, will this happen? Biblical hope, the question is not, will this happen? The question is, when will this happen? How long, oh Lord, will we have to wait? See, for the person who has a biblical kind of grounding and hope in the resurrection of the body, the return of the king, the restoration of all things, the question isn't, is this going to happen? It's how long do we have to wait? It's like this. Um, so years ago when I was working on a summer camp, I was working on a summer camp out on Lake, uh, or, uh, Lake Shasta and, and on the Sacramento River Delta. I was on top of these houseboats, and every morning one of the things that we would do when we wanted to just have a kind of experience and moment with the Lord is we would get up real early in the morning. I'm talking like 5 a.m., 4.45 a.m., and we would get up before the sun rose. And we would be freezing cold and we would be up and we'd be waiting for that sunrise. And on the Sacramento River Delta, you can see straight for miles. And so you see the sun rising. And here's what would happen. We'd sit there and it's dark and it's cold and we're tired. And we sat there as we were waiting for the sun to crack the sky and come up into the air. But you know what never happened for us? There was never a doubt. Like, what if today is the first day in history this doesn't happen? There was never a doubt in our mind. We were never like, what if the sun just stays down? That was never the question. The question is, how long will we have to wait? We know it's going to happen. We just don't know how long it's going to happen. That's biblical hope. The biblical hope you have is, hey... Whatever you do to me, whatever you say about me, however you harm me, however you harm my family, whatever you say about my church, whatever you say about my Jesus, there's going to come a day where everything looks a lot different. Jesus returns, my body is raised, all things are made new. That's biblical hope. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are holding on to. Then it goes on this way in verse 19. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Is that even necessary? Absolutely not. Why is he doing it? Because he's enraged. Do enraged, angry people make wise decisions? Never. All right, verse 20. And he commanded some of his strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the flaming furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And that should be the end of the story. That should be the final part of the story, and then we never heard from them again. That's not how it goes. It says, then they fell into the furnace, verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar blipped to his feet in amazement, asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? Yes, they replied, your majesty, certainly. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. So there's this fourth guy in the fire with them. And there's all sorts of biblical conversation around this. Some say this is an angel who's there to protect them. Others would say this is sort of like a pre-incarnate Jesus. Before Jesus came into Nazareth as a baby, Jesus lived in heaven with his father forever. Maybe he was present in the flames. And here's what I love to say. We don't want to shout where the Bible whispers, right? So it doesn't actually say this is Jesus. We're not going to say we're for sure this is Jesus, but here's what we're going to say for sure. The presence of God was with them in that fire. They get pushed into a fire. The three of them tied together. That should be the end of the story. And it turns out they don't burn up. And the kicker is there's a fourth one in the fire with them. There was another in the fire, another individual who was there. The presence of God represented. Now, here's the danger. The danger is you hear the story. And you hear me telling a story tonight about this. And you go, okay, that's the moral of the story. The moral of the story is if anything bad ever happens, God's gonna step in and save me and nothing's ever gonna hurt me. And that is not the moral of the story. And the reason I can tell you it's not the moral of the story is because they come out of the fire and where are they still? They're still in Babylon. They're still in exile. It's not like they came out of the fire and they're back in Jerusalem. like, that was a weird dream. They're still stuck. Their life isn't perfect. The moral of this story isn't trust God and nothing bad will ever happen to you. The point of this story, again, is not that we live the life Daniel lived, it's that we trust the same God Daniel trusted. We trust the same God these three men trusted. And I think this story is gonna tell us at least three things, and it's at least three questions that we all need to ask about God's sovereignty. Number one, it's a question of God's presence. Is he actually among us? And this story clearly tells us yes. Clearly tells us that right in the middle of the flames, right in the middle of the fire, God was with them, he was present. And Christian, I need you to know the same thing is true about you. Child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, here's what the scripture says, that the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside of your bones. God lives inside of you. He promises he will never leave you nor forsake you. I need you to know the thing isn't that God is up in heaven like, ah, you can worship me when you want. God's already here. He's in that row and he's in that row and he's in that row and you better believe he's in the balcony and he's in the back back there and he's over there. He's everywhere. He's inside of you. Is God's present with us? The actual answer is yes. Second question. Does God govern the world? Like, again, this is the question of deism versus theism. Does God just kind of stand back and go, that's a shame for those guys. That'll be a fiery, hot death. Too bad. No, the answer is no. God steps in. He governs the world. That flame should have killed those men, but he stepped in and defied the laws of nature and physics and allowed them to live in a flame. God governs the world. And that is the best possible news I could ever tell you. Some people resist it so hard, and they're like, no, God doesn't step in. He doesn't interfere with free will. He doesn't interfere with the world. He lets us make our own choices and do our own things. And I don't understand why you would want to trust in a God like that. Why would you want to trust in a God that doesn't actually move in this world and do anything? Why would you pray for a God like that? Like, are there people in your life you ever pray for that they would become Christians? Why would you pray that God would make them become Christians and have them become Christians if you didn't think God stepped in and did something? Why would you ever pray for someone's peace if you didn't think God could actually insert peace inside of their life? The most calming and comforting thing in my life is the idea that God actually moves in the lives of human beings. He actually governs the world. He doesn't stand back and just say, you do you. He's actually involved. Question number one, is God really with us? Yes. Question number two, does God govern the world? Yes. Question number three, does God actually care about me? And the answer here is yes. God sees these three faithful servants and says, I care about them, I'm gonna rescue them. And what does God do? He rescues them. And he even leaves them in exile, meaning he's not gonna solve all their problems. He's not gonna make everything perfect. But this is this clear evidence that God's heart and his mind are on those who love him and stay faithful to him. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth to see whose hearts are fully devoted to him. That's what happens here. And what we clearly see is there's is a God who loves us, who sees us, who is with us, and will never forsake us. Verse 26 says this, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Now here's what I want you to note They came out of the fire, but that wasn't the moment of victory. The moment of victory happened before they came out of the fire. This is one of the most important observations in this whole story. One of the most important observations in this entire story is the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these three teenagers do not encounter God until they are where? They are in the fire. They don't actually encounter God until they're in the fire. And this is a beautiful thing about suffering. It's a beautiful thing about this life. See, one of the things I've learned in my life is that I'm a fan of God when things are familiar. When things are going my way, when everything feels great, when everything feels like the world is as it should be, I'm a big fan of God. I love to worship, I love my Spotify playlist, love to go to church, love my Bible, love to have a coffee and a Bible study and put it on the gram in the morning. I am a fan of God. But here's what I've learned. I am a fan of God in the familiar, but I have become a friend of God in the fire. In the moments of my pain in my life, in the moments where I have felt the deepest ache and pain in my life, from things that have happened in my family to things that have happened with my friends, in the seasons of life where I felt lonely, in the seasons of life where I felt anxious, in the seasons of life where everything falls apart, in 2020 when the whole world was shutting down, in 2018 when our community went through a terrible fire and a shooting right in our community, those were the moments I went from being a fan of God to a friend of God. Where? In the fire. And if you talk to people who know Jesus well, they will tell you. That the moment they came to know him best was the moment of their greatest pain and suffering. I need you to know that God meets us in a powerful and a profound way in the fire. And if you were going, I'm going through hell right now. It is the fire. I am suffering. This is difficult. I want you to know that is exactly where God loves to meet you. I was a friend of God in the familiar. I became a fan of God. or I was a fan of God in the familiar. I became a friend of his in the fire. Verse 27 says this So the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, and not a hair on their head was singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has sent his angel to rescue his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command, and they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship a god other than their own god. Therefore, I decree that all the people of any nation and language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut into pieces and their houses turned into a pile of rubble for no other God can save in this way. By the way, this is not a good evangelism strategy. Like, anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus, we're going to knock down your house and burn everything you love. But that's what Nebuchadnezzar goes with. Verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. Like, this is an amazing thing about our God. Our God has them go through this whole thing, how? So that they can experience the same promotion and success that Daniel did in the previous chapter. So that they can be elevated, so that they can be raised up just like Daniel was. In the end, God brings them through this whole thing for a purpose. It's not random, it's not an accident. It's not like, oh yeah, they fell in a fire, but then they had this good thing. God brings them through this whole experience so they can be raised up. And then do you see what it says there in the text? It says the entire empire hears about the goodness of Yahweh. The goodness of our God. This is an amazing thing. God brings them through this whole experience, not randomly, not just off the cuff, but because he's trying to accomplish something in their life. And here's what you need to know. That the God of the universe brings you through experiences in your life because he is trying to accomplish something that is for his purposes his pleasure and for your good. Again, Psalm chapter 115 that our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. He will bring you through whatever He wants to bring you through, but it is for His glory and it is for your good. Let me put it this way. So, a couple of years ago, my in laws uh, decided to take us on vacation, and they are Disney Vacation Club members, and they decided that they were going to take us to the Disney Resort in Hawaii. And we were like, awesome, we are all in. So so we have our young girl, Grace, at the time, this was years ago, and so she's just a bit younger, and and here's what happened one morning. One morning, we said, hey, Grace, um, we're going to wake you up a little early tomorrow morning, and the next morning, we woke her up really early. So she gets up really early in the morning, and she's kind of tired and doesn't know what's going on, and we put her clothes on, and we put her in the car, and we drive down the 101 freeway, down the 405 freeway, which, if you don't live in Southern California, is the worst place in the world, right? Um, And so we're stuck in traffic, and then we get to the airport, and she has to go through security, and they're, like, making her take off, different things, or she's or that's uh, so just confusing and she feels separate, and she's kind of anxious and afraid uh, and then we get to the gate. We have to sit and wait for a while so she sits on one of those hard plastic seats and it's early in the morning and she wants some food and all she really wants to be doing is watching her favorite show, Doc McStuffins and that's all she wants to be doing and so she's there and she's frustrated and then we say no, 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 baby girl, baby girl, we gotta put you in, in this other seat and we, so we go onto the plane and we put her on a seat and we try to do it and we fly up into the air and suddenly her ears are popping and she has no idea why and it's kind of frustrating and then she's hungry and she's like, I'd like some food, we're like, we would like some food, please, and airline food comes our way, which is not my daughter's favorite, right, and so now she's eating airline food, she got up early, she doesn't feel good, she's uncomfortable, she can't watch Doc McStuffins, she's eating airline food, she's tired, she's cranky, it's a long flight to Hawaii, it's like six hours, so she's in this flight, she's crying, she's miserable, she's overwhelmed, she has no idea why all of this is happening, and all of this process is happening, and I've always tried to get my head inside of my daughter's brain in that moment. Like, why did mom and dad get me up in the early, put me in the car, make me go on this thing, make me sit in this chair, and then a less comfortable chair, and I can't watch Doc McStuffins, and I'm tired, and my ears are hurting, and I don't know what's going on. She's gone through this whole process, and she has no idea why. And then, we get to the Disney Resort in Hawaii. We get out to the balcony that evening, and we take this picture right here. There's my little girl. And you know what occurs to me? In the entire process of getting up early and getting into the car and getting dressed and being stuck in traffic and going through the airport security and not watching Doc McStuffins and sitting in an uncomfortable chair and then another uncomfortable chair, she's in this process, she's in this pain, she's going through this thing. She knows the process. She knows how frustrating it is. But the thing about my little daughter is her little brain could not possibly comprehend the final picture. She knew the process she was in. She had no idea the final picture that was coming. And child of God, here's what I need you to know about our God. He's got you in a process right now and I know it's difficult and I know it's hard. I know it's not your favorite. I know there are moments you wish you could give up. I know there are moments you wish it could be different. But if you could only see the final picture that God is painting in your life, if you could only see the final picture that God is doing through this world, if you could only know that this is coming, you would trust him. And here's the reason you can trust him. Because whatever your dad was like and whatever your household is like, the reason I put my girl through all of that isn't because I hate her, it's because I love her. And I want what's best for her. And you have a Father in heaven who is sovereign over all things. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he will bring you through any process that he sees fit and that pleases him so that he can create a beautiful and final picture in your life. And on that day where you see that final picture, you will rejoice, fall on your face in worship, and glorify the God who is in heaven, who reigns, who does whatever he pleases, and the God who is sovereign over all things. I beg you. I plead you, I plead with you this evening to trust that God. I know the process is hard, I know it's difficult, but let's go back to that journal entry from 13 years ago. 13 years ago this year, 13 years ago this spring, I wrote these words, and this is true for you too. I shouldn't be though, I shouldn't be scared. God always, always, always comes through for me. Let's pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. And God, I just want to pray a special prayer right now, asking on behalf of those who are suffering, who are going through that process, who don't see the final picture. I pray for the young woman who is just going through hell right now. God, that you would meet her in power here at camp. I pray for the young man who feels lost and confused and overwhelmed with this world. God, would you give him a sense of peace and purpose, and would you give him the joy that comes from your salvation? God, I pray that we would be a people who trust you, who trust your sovereign will, and trust your Father's heart. God, would you bless us? Would you keep us? Would your presence go with us wherever we go? And in all things, may we stay faithful to Jesus, the one and only, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In his name we pray, and all God's people said?